0: Oh, Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christogene. You're on Talk Shoe. It is Friday, March 4th, 2011. Praise Yahweh. I want to thank all the people that helped keep Christogene alive. Dot org in the top one hundred thousand websites in the world it it actually dropped out for a spell in late January and early february but but it's it it's not that our site traffic dropped, but that I guess more people were inside and and mainstream and porno site traffic went up right but um forty percent of the hits on Christ are new every month from new people and and um twenty five percent come from search engines. But but it's people that like to read on the site and and download the podcasts and and things like that that help keep it that help keep our site ranking up there. If the site ranking stays up there, we maintain and and improve search engine visibility. That's what we want to do. We want to reach the children of Yahweh and help to wake them up to the true message of the Bible. Thank you. Okay, last week in Revelation chapters one through five. We saw, I'm sorry, that wasn't last week. So far in Revelation chapters one through five, we saw the identification of the, of the, um, of the Christ, Yahshua Christ as Yahweh himself in the flesh. We saw the messages to the seven assemblies, assemblies with errors and attitudes that are still with us today. The only assemblies which were not criticized were those of Smyrna, a name which refers to the oil of anointing. And Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. If we emulate those things, neither will we be condemned in the day of Christ. Then we saw the vision of Yahweh's throne and the vision of the Lamb and the scroll with seven seals. The opening of each seal would reveal some great event in history as told in Revelations chapters 6-11. through The seventh seal consisted of seven trumpets, And with our interpretation of those seals and trumpets, we saw history as it was revealed before time from the beginnings of the Roman Empire through its fall and then the Arab and Turkic invasions of Christendom ending with the Reformation and the return of the people of Yahweh to the word of Yahweh. The the Eurocentricity of all of these prophecies, reveals the European peoples to be the people of God. And none of these prophecies ever describe the Jews, except those which reference Satan, notably Revelations 2 9, Revelations 3 9, and Revelation chapter 12, where last week we saw that Herod, the Edomite, was the representative of the dragon who attempted to slay the Christ child. Revelation chapter 12 is a prophecy with many aspects, and it is evident that it was not only a description of the fall of Satan and the birth of the Christ child, but it was also a description of the founding of the people of God on the North North American continent and the birth of this great Christian nation. Just as the adversaries of our God attempted to kill his Christ as soon as the child was born and plotted against him throughout his entire life, so also they have been attempting to destroy this nation from its very inception. Revelation chapter 12, as it is interpreted here, ends this heretofore linear historical narrative of mostly future events Which was revealed to John. Revelation chapter 13, as it shall hopefully be made manifest now, is a prophetic overview of the period of the 2,520 years of Israel's punishment, the end of which began at the founding of this Christian nation. These United States, in its narrative, Revelation chapter 13 describes two great beasts. The narrative picks up directly from where chapter 12 left off, so it's really not breaking at all, broken at all, right? The chapter division it is a division decided upon by men and not by God. However, since chapter 12 is a prophecy with a many-fold meaning, we have to examine... I'm sorry, I lost my place. Since Revelation 12 is a prophecy with a many-fold meaning, we have to examine the context of that chapter in order to see how it relates to the narrative of these events, which were revealed to John. Revelation 13. Nope. I'm sorry. Revelation thirteen I'm I'm lost, I'm sorry. If the woman of Revelation chapter twelve being carried off represents the Israelites who were deported by the Assyrians and Babylonians, who actually became the Germanic peoples, then the two beasts must also describe some entity. These two beasts of Revelation thirteen must also describe some entity that had arisen around that time that it may that the beast may persecute or the dragon who gives power to the beast may persecute the woman so here revelation 13 is not interpreted as being an extension of the linear historical narrative that is evident and it has pre- been presented here in revelation chapters 6 through 12 rather it is a description of those entities and their attributes which Yahweh our God allowed to be the vehicles of our chastisement, those powers which were behind the 2,520 years or seven times of tyranny, which our race endured in our period of separation from our God, our period of punishment. Israel was promised to be punished for seven times, 2,520 prophetic years. Now, when Christ came, of course, he redeemed Israel, but that was only 700 and so years into that period of punishment. The entire period of punishment being decreed by Yahweh had to play out. So these two beasts of Revelation 13 are the vehicles of our chastisement behind that 2,520 years of tyranny which we endured before we return to the word of God beginning with the period of the Reformation that we saw explained and prophesied in chapters 10 and 11. At the end of chapter 11, we saw a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. The Word of God is the true Ark of the Covenant, which is mentioned there, and and which describes the Reformation, the return of the people of God to the Word of God. Even though today the Protestant churches are very imperfect, there are other powers at play, and they will be discussed later later in the Reformation. I'm sorry, later in the Revelation. Here, I will read the first half of Revelation chapter 13. If you haven't heard me before, the notes to this program, the commentary part, are already posted at the ChristRike site, christright.christiginia.org, Revelation 13. Revelation 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast ascending from out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and upon its horns ten diadems, and upon its heads a name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and its feet as a bear's, and its mouth as a lion's mouth, and the dragon had given to it his power. This is important because the dragon is identified as Satan. His power and his throne and great authority. And one from among its heads is as having been slaughtered unto death, yet the wound of its death had been healed. And the whole earth marveled after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with it? And there had been given to it a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And there had been given to it authority to act for forty and two months. And it opened its mouth in blasphemies towards Yahweh to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, those dwelling in heaven. Verse 7, and there had been given to it to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority had been given to it over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all those dwelling upon the earth worshipped it, of whom their names are not written in the book of the life, the book of life of the Lamb who had been slaughtered from the foundation of the society. If one has an ear, he must hear. If one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. If one is to be slain by the sword, he is to be slain by the sword. Thus is the patience and faith of the saints. This is the Christogenian New Testament version I'm reading. I'll discuss some of the different translations when I present the interpretation of this first half of Revelation 13. Revelation chapter 13 contains a vision made. Made manifest to the Apostle John of two great beasts. The second beast comes out of a wounding of the head of the first beast. It shall be manifest that this, that the first beast is the system of world empires ending with Rome, and the second beast is the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church. This is that um, this then believed by the by reformers since probably the the 14th century, the 15th century, that the Catholic Church was indeed the beast of Revelation chapter 13. This shall all be discussed here at length, and especially where it coincides with parallel prophecies found in Daniel chapters 2 and 7. So we're really going to cover three chapters tonight, Revelation 13, Daniel 2, and Daniel 7. However, before doing so, it it, it may be me first to read Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 45, in order to begin to understand this chapter in the Revelation and these prophecies concerning the beast, where Daniel is interpreting a dream which was experienced by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. From the King James Version, Daniel 2, verses 31 through 45. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. I won't go back to this Verse 35 in Daniel 2, again in this presentation, and and this is not part of my notes. However, let me say that there are people in the world, Christians, who expect a return to the rise of old Rome. That's not possible. Daniel 2.35 says it's not possible because the old Roman Empire was the feet and, and, and the legs of iron of this image and here daniel says that it's what well, when it when it falls when this beast ends it's to be broken to pieces together to become like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind would carry them away if you could put together a wheat field after the wind carries the chaff away then you could put together old rome it's not going to happen verse 36 I'm sorry, I'm not done with verse 35. That no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. 36. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, the book of Nazar, art the king of kings. For the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell... The beast of the field and the fowls of heaven has he given into thine hand. And let me say very quickly that the book of Mezar, the Babylonian, he never ruled over the Chinese. He never ruled over the blacks in Africa. He never ruled over the, the, um, the squat monsters in South America, the Mongols, the Asian peoples. They are not the children of men. That's why he never ruled over them. So we have to exclude them from all biblical interpretation and, and pro- of prophecy. Wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and has made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. Thou art this head of gold means Babylon. He was the king of Babylon, the book of Nezar. The inferior kingdom is the arms of silver, and that means Persia. Persian Empire followed the Babylonian. And another, third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth, that's the Greek Empire of Alexander, verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. For as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron it breaks, all of these shall it break in pieces and bruise. This is talking about the Roman Empire. And whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes part of powder's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron for as much as thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay. We will talk about these toes when we get to Genesis. I'm sorry, to Daniel chapter seven, which I will also elucidate here. Yahweh willing, verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. So we see that the Romans had engaged in race mixing. To some degree, and they did. Many of the Roman slaves were Edomites and Arabs and already mixed race Egyptians. They brought them into Italy, they brought them into Greece, and they began to mix with them. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms. Let me say that that seed of men in Daniel 2.43 is not the word Adam. It's the word Enosh, which is a human male not necessarily an Adamite. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So we see that the kingdom of God was set up in the time of the Roman Empire. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these peoples, all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Very important promise, because when we look At who destroyed the Roman Empire, we have the Germanic peoples of Europe, and they will stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof, sure. Daniel 2 is important in understanding Revelation chapter 13, when we see some of the symbology used there, and compare it to Daniel 7 also, which we're also going to cover tonight. It is seen that this beast, of which Nebuchadnezzar is only the head, is a series of great kingdoms which in turn rule over the Adamic oikumene, that part of the world civilized by Adamic man. Now let it be noticed what this beast is not. That's just as important. There are no seven heads with, ten, with clowns or ten horns, as is seen in Revelation chapter 13 description. Neither is this beast described as having a duration of 1260 years or three and a half times, which is the 42 months of Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. That is because, as hopefully shall become evident, Daniel's vision here in chapter 2 only concerned, well, well, first, all of Daniel's visions only concerned his present and his future. And this description of Daniel's is only a part of the first beast described by John in Revelation chapter 13 and is not its entirety. This will be also discussed at length later. Daniel's four kingdoms, described here, had a duration of about 1,080 years from 606 B.C. with the ascension of Nebuchadnezzar to the throne in Babylon to 476 B.C. in the fall of Rome. It is a parallel prophecy, but it does not correspond in its entirety. What it does help one understand, however, is that where the people who destroyed this beast are seen, then the true people of God are made manifest. The Romish church tries to make the claim that it had supplanted Daniel's fourth kingdom, and therefore it represents the kingdom of God. That is an absolutely false claim. In actuality, the Romish church followed this beast, and Revelation Chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, we shall see, describe that. But the Roman church did not supplant this beast. Indeed, the first beast, the succession of empires ending with Rome, was destroyed both by its own corruption, the iron which did not mix with the clay, and by the Germanic children of dispersed Israel, which invaded and, for a time, supplanted Daniel's fourth kingdom. This does not describe the Roman church. Before returning to and attempting to interpret Revelation chapter 13, the first part of Daniel chapter seven, which is also a parallel prophecy, shall be read and discussed here. Daniel seven, verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote a dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens drove up upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. An examination of these beasts reveals them to be those same world empires described by Daniel in chapter 2 of his prophecy. Yes, Daniel is repeating himself here, but Daniel chapter 7 has a much broader scope than Daniel chapter 2 does. Verse 4 of Daniel 7, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made... Stand upon the feet as, the man, as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. This describes the Babylonian Empire. Verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second, like to obey it. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. This is the Medo-Persian Empire, which conquered three former world empires. The Egyptian, the Assyrian, and the Babylonian. Verse 6. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This leopard is very fast. This is Alexander's Hellenistic Empire, which conquered the Old World very quickly. I think Alexander took about ten years to conquer um, all of from Macedonia to conquer everything to the to the, to India from from Greece from Greece to India Persia and, and Egypt and, and the the entire old world Assyria the um, the four wings and the four heads are the four pieces which Alexander's empire dissolved into after his death. It's well recorded in history that four of Alexander's generals had divided his kingdom among themselves. Verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, it devoured in broken pieces, and stampeded the res- stamped the residue with the seed of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. As in Daniel 2, Rome is described as the most horrible of all these beasts. Rome also conquered much of the territory held by all of the empires which preceded it with the exclusion of Parthia, which consisted of much of the former Persian empire. Verse 8, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots and behold in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking great things. Daniel 7, 8. A lot of commentators strive to imagine that the ten horns are the Germanic kingdoms which the Western Empire had, eventually, been divided into. This is not accurate, because in Daniel's description, it is evident that the fourth beast had the ten horns, not those who destroyed it. It possessed them before it was divided. The horns may be interpreted to have two different descriptions, and therefore, there are different interpretations. Here is the first, and the second interpretation shall be discussed below at verse 20, where it states that the ten horns are indeed ten kings. Here, in verse 8, the ten horns may represent the original ten senatorial provinces of the Roman Empire, which would indeed be the ten toes described in Daniel chapter 2. There are a lot of commentators on these ten, ten toes and ten horns, and, and I think that they all quite don't get that. They all Some of them get it dead wrong, and some of them get close. The little horn which arises out of them represents the Byzantine Empire, and especially Justinian, and that shall be made evident later in this chapter. Some say that the Ten Horns can be found in the division of the empire into political units under Augustus Caesar. It can be found in Edward Gibbon's The History of the Decline and Fall of Rome, Volume 1, pages 241 to 249, that while Gibbon says 11, Istria was rather attached to Rome itself. Gibbon says the following on page 241, we may remark that when Augustus divided Italy into 11 regions, the province of Istria was annexed to that seat of Roman sovereignty. Dibbon then names the ten divisions of Italy by Augustus. But that doesn't really describe the ten toes, because the empire stands on ten toes, I, I think, and, and that's much wider than only Italy itself. I think that yet much more appropriately, in 14 AD under Augustus, the Roman Empire was divided into provinces, both senatorial provinces and imperial provinces. The senatorial provinces represented the core of the Roman people where they settled and and the Greek people where they settled. The senatorial provinces belonged to the people of Rome. And their governors were chosen by the Roman Senate. They were ten in number: Achaea, Africa, Asia, Crete, Crete and Cyrene were one; Cyprus, Gallia Narbonensis, which is that part of the coast of France, which is along the Mediterranean; Hispania Baetica, which is in southern Spain; Macedonia and Thessaly; Pontus and Bithynia; and Sicily. There are ten senatorial provinces that made up the Roman Empire that belonged to the Roman Senate and the Roman people. All of the other Roman provinces, which were over two dozen at the time of Augustus, they were imperial provinces. They were the fruits of conquest for which the emperor chose the governors. By the 3rd century AD, There were more imperial provinces than there were in the first century. However, there were still the same ten senatorial provinces that were the provinces of the people and the Senate of Rome. The little horn came up out of these ten senatorial provinces, as shall be evident below, and it had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. The Byzantines under Justinian had reconquered three portions of the old Western Empire, all of them being senatorial provinces, which had been taken away by the Germanic invaders. These are Italy, Africa, and southern Spain, clearly identifying Justinian with this little horn. This will be identified further as we get to verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was as white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him, thousands of thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Daniel saw his vision all the way to the day of judgment and the description here is much like those descriptions of the throne of Yahweh as it is depicted by Joshua in the Revelation verse 11 I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which of the great words which the horn spoke I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame since this beast is really a system and not an individual the body and the flame are allegorical even the individual justinian is only a part of the system although he is signal here because of the accomplishments which the beast made during his rule These accomplishments allowed for the rise of the second beast of Revelation 13, as we shall see. If one wants to interpret what the lake of fire is, which is seen in Revelation chapters 19 and 20, then one must do it within this very context. For it is a destructive force that incinerates all of the enemies of God, and not, as many false teachers profess a cleansing force that purifies those who are thrown into it. The lake of fire only purifies in the sense that it eliminates all of those who are allegorically thrown into it, as we see here in Daniel 7, verse 11. The body of the beast is slain and destroyed and given to the burning flame, just as, at Revelation chapter 19, The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 12. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Excuse me. This is where the people of God are today. In word, the Adamic peoples are in a period of self-rule, as we shall see, possessing the kingdom of Yahweh for themselves ever since the Reformation, and especially since the monarchies of Europe were transformed into parliamentary democracies. The period of the two beasts is over. However, in reality, they are still under the control and influence of these same beasts, which have exercised power in Europe, the nearly three millennia. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. This is one like a Son of Man. The article is not in either the Hebrew or in the Greek versions. One like a Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Yahshua Christ is one of his Adamic people, a son of man, a son of Adam. So this is one like a son of man who would come to rule over the Adamic world. He is also Yahweh Himself in the flesh, and so Paul calls Him firstborn among many brethren Romans eight twenty nine, which He certainly is. The people of all of the Adamic nations, languages, and tongues shall serve Yahshua Christ Himself at His manifestation. Of course, just as all of the promises of the entire Bible are limited to the nations of the race of Adam. For instance, Genesis 3.22, Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Deuteronomy 32, eight, Acts 17.26, and in many other places, so it is here. Daniel 7.15 I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, in the midst of my body, and in the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me, And made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Here Daniel's vision is interpreted. It is evident that the first part of the account of these beasts describes four kingdoms that shall rule over the Oikumene, the Adamic world. This, it shall also be evident, is describing those same entities which are seen with the first beast of Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Yet the saints, or the holy ones of Yahweh, are promised that they would inherit the earth, and God shall indeed keep that promise. This discussion shall be return to the later part of Daniel chapter 7 below. For now it shall focus on the first half of our purpose here, Revelation chapter 13, which discusses the first beast in the vision of John. Revelation 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast ascending from out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and upon its horns ten diadems, or crowns, and upon its heads a name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and its feet as a bear's, and its mouth as a lion's mouth, and the dragon had given to it his power and his throne and great authority. First, note that this beast gets its power from the dragon. And the dragon is seen in Revelation chapter 12 as being that serpent of old who is called the false accuser and the adversary. Or, in the King James, that serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. At Luke chapter 4, it is recorded that the false accuser, Satan, says to Yahshua Christ, in reference to all of the kingdoms of the Oikumene, the, the Adamic world, I will give to you authority over all this and their honor, because to me it was delivered, and to whomever I wish I could give it. Therefore, if you, meaning Christ, would worship before me, it shall all be yours. While Revelation chapter 12 associates the satanic power with the Edomite Jew, Herod, who stood before the Christ child, it is evident that that these same satanic antichrist powers, which are seen in today's internationalist bankers and political figures, are very real and have been around for a very long time. The beast described here has seven heads and 10 horns. The seven heads are different from Daniel's one-headed beast. They seem to represent seven great world empires. Included in these empires are traits of the beasts representing the empires in Daniel's vision. Therefore, it is known that the scope of John's vision here is greater than that of Daniel's. The seven world empires must be from the beginning of the history of the children of Israel, and all which of which have oppressed Israel at one time or another rather than starting in Daniel's time, as Daniel did, only from the time of the king of Babylon. This is also obviously the same beast as the beast in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, which is associated with the dragon, the old serpent, the devil, and Satan. So we see the primary difference between The beast of Revelation chapter 13 and the beast of Daniel chapter 7 is that John is speaking about a a greater scope and a wider period of time, but they have all the same attributes. Revelation chapter 17 also discusses this same beast. That will help us understand this. There, in verse 9, it says that, quote, And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads which we see the seven heads are on this beast, are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goes into perdition. The five beasts that are fallen by John's time must be Egypt, Assyria, Media, Persia, Babylon, and Greece. The one it is, in John's day, is Rome. These are not all of the Adamic empires. These are all of the Adamic empires that at one time ruled over the children of Israel. The Seventh Empire, according to Bertrand Camperet, was the Holy Roman Empire. However, Camperet did not understand that the second beast of Revelation 13, which we will describe here when we get to it, was the papacy, and it indeed was. Compare actually thought it was the United Nations, and his interpretation is really lost in Revelation 13, as far as I'm concerned. The Holy Roman Empire was actually only a portion of the second beast of Revelation 13 being a vehicle of the Pope's which will be discussed here when we discuss the second half of Revelation chapter 13. And it will be discussed, I'm sure, in a few weeks when we discuss Revelation chapter 17, Yahweh willing. Revelation 13:3, And one from among, from among its heads, as if having been slaughtered unto death, yet the wound of its death had been healed. Revelation 13, Verses 12 and 14 associate the second beast of John's vision to be related to this first beast, to be the healing of the wounded head, and that is what this is identifying. And the whole earth marveled after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, because he had given authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with it? And there had been given to it a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and there had been given to it authority to act for forty and two months. And it opened its mouth in blasphemies towards Yahweh to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, those dwelling in heaven." Another way to understand what this describes is to look back at history and to see who it was that defiled the temple of Yahweh. The Babylonians, and as scripture tells us also the Edomites with them, because they were allied with them, destroyed the first temple of Yahweh. Babylon was the gold head of the beast in division in Daniel chapter 2 and the lion with the eagle's wings in Daniel chapter 7. It's also one of the beasts here that's already fallen. Then around 155 BC, the Greek rulers of Syria, who were a part of the trunk of brass of Daniel's beast in chapter 2, and who were one of the wings and heads of the leopard in Daniel chapter 7, these Greek rulers of Syria had defiled the second temple. Finally, the Romans, the two legs of Daniel's beast, of of Daniel's chapter two beast, sought to set up their own idols in the temple of Yahweh, the last one which was actually built in the reign of Herod the Edomite. And therefore, all of the blasphemy and the defilement of the physical temple of God by this ongoing system of world empires, which is this first beast, is fully evident to be described in this. Here it is seen that this first beast had authority to act for 42 months, or 1260 prophetic years. From the time when the children of Israel were deported by the Assyrians, which began approximately 741 B.C., under the fall of Rome in 476 A.D., was 1218 years. Yet, Assyria rose as an empire from the time of their king, Adad-Nirari, Adad-Nirari III actually, who ruled from 810 BC to 783 BC. This Assyrian king's mother, interestingly, was the Babylonian princess Samu-Ramat. Who was the source of the later Greek myths about Semiramis. She's the Semiramis of Greek mythology. Adad-Nirari III first invaded ancient Israel, reaching Palestine in 804 BC. Not detailed in the biblical records, Adad-Nirari's march into Palestine and collection of tribute from Israel in the days of Jehoash and Jeroboam II are mentioned in Assyrian inscriptions. I can cite ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, edited by James Pritchard, Princeton University Press, 1969, page 281, as one source for that. From 804 B.C. to 476 A.D. and the final fall of Rome, is about 1,280 years. Note that John dates the first beast, but not the second. It shall become evident below when we discuss Daniel, chapter 7, the rest of Daniel, chapter 7, that Daniel dates the second beast, which is described by John. The 1,260 years here cannot include Egypt or the last of John's seven kings, which is, quote, unquote, not yet come. Yet the beast nevertheless had seven heads, and those two kingdoms are a part of this beast, while their authority is evidently outside of this period. The 1260 years from Assyria to Rome are fully evident. Revelation 13, verse 7. And it had been given to it to make war with the saints and to overcome them, And authority had been given to it over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all those dwelling upon the earth worshipped it, of whom their names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, who had been slaughtered from the foundation of society. If one has an ear, he must hear. If one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. If one is to be slain by the sword, he is to be slain by the sword. Thus is the patience and the faith of the saints, or the holy ones of Yahweh. As Daniel said in his vision in Daniel chapter 2, the beast system of world empires would rule, quote-unquote, wheresoever the children of men dwell, and so it is here. So we can't imagine the Chinese, the squat monsters in South America, and the Africans to be among the children of men that the beast ruled over, and neither are they among the children of men who will be judged by Yahweh in the last days. The children of Yahweh should not have a care for the beast, but rather they should long for the return of Yahshua Christ and their final restoration into his kingdom. So those not written in the book of life are the ones we find worshiping the beast. The children of Yahweh should rule the day when their ancestors sought an earthly king, the account of which we see in the first book of Samuel. That the lamb was slaughtered from the foundation of society, or the world, in most Bible translations, is evidence that all history is predetermined by Yahweh himself. And he knew upon the creation of Adam what it was that he would have to do in order to chastise and to instruct his children. The first promise of restoration is at Genesis 3.22, which says in part, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat, And live forever. Yahshua Christ, being that tree of life, he knew long before that time that he would have to make his ultimate sacrifice for our benefit. Like him, Christians should fear Yahweh God and not they who can kill the body only and then have no further power. There is indeed life for the children of Yahweh apart from the flesh verse 10 in the king james here in revelation 13 verse 10 states he that leads into captivity shall go into captivity he that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword here is the patience and faith with the, of the saints in the king james version of the bible the greek here is very badly misread the north american version the, the the new american standard version i'm sorry corrects the first half of this verse, where it states, if anyone is destined for captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with the sword he must be killed. However, that version still fails to read the second half of the verse properly. The verb in the second half of this verse, where it says, if anyone kills with the sword, by the sword he must be killed, the verb apo I'm sorry, apo nahi, translated to kill," is the same passive form in both places. It's a passive verb in both places, therefore, it must be rendered passively in both places as "to be killed, not. To kill. So the King James and the NAS both have this very dead wrong. There's no doubt. It should read if anyone is to be killed by the sword, he shall be killed by the sword. That's the way it is. This verse teaches predestination, it does not teach judgment. Just as Yahweh. As Yahshua Christ knew his own fate from the beginning, he also knows the fate of each of his children. While man indeed has free will, a choice to make his own errors or to seek good, Yahweh, being God, cannot help knowing ahead of time what route each man shall take. Now, to discuss the second half of Revelation chapter 13, the vision in verses 11 through 18, which describes what John saw of a second beast. I hope to have made it clear that the first half of Revelation 13 is a parallel prophecy to Daniel chapter 7 and to Daniel chapter 2, and describes a series of empires that would rule over the children of Adam for 1260 years. Revelation 13, verse 11, I will read the second half of Revelation 13, and then we will will return to Daniel. And I saw another beast ascending from out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and spoke as a dragon. And all the authority of the first beast, it practices in his presence. And it makes the earth and, and those dwelling in it that they shall worship the first beast who had been healed from the wound of its death. And he shall make a great sign that even fire would be made from heaven to descend to earth before men. And he would deceive those dwelling upon the earth through the signs which had been given to him to make in the presence of the beast, saying to those dwelling upon the earth to make an image for the beast who has the wound of the sword and has lived. And there had been given to him to give a spirit to the image of the beast in order that the image of the beast may also speak and they make it that as many as who would not worship in the image of the beast should be slain. Who would not worship the image of the beast should be slain. And it makes all those who are small and those who are great, and those who are wealthy and those who are poor and those who are free and those who are slaves, that they have given to them an engraved mark upon their right hand or upon their forehead, and in order that one would not be able to buy or sell if he has not the mark, the name of the beast, or the number of his name, thus is wisdom. He having a mind must calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, before discussing the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, it may be beneficial first to discuss. The rest of Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 28, since Daniel certainly seems to be describing this very same entity. Verse 19 of Daniel 7. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured broken pieces and stamped the residue with his feet and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. The fourth beast here is described very much like the fourth kingdom of Daniel at Daniel 2.40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron shall break all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. The ten horns can describe the provinces of Rome, those ten senatorial provinces upon which the empire was built, and which are the ten toes of the vision in Daniel chapter two. And the other horn which came up, before whom three fell, describes the Byzantine Empire, the eastern half of the Roman Empire under Justinian, who after the west had fallen, sent his armies to conquer Italy, Africa, and Spain, and to regain them for the empire. As it shall be elucidated below, Justinian did things which were indeed worthy of one who had a mouth That spoke great things. Verse 21 of Daniel 7 I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. The Roman Empire sought to subdue practically the entire known world to devour the whole earth, and it would have, if it were able, the Germanic tribes, who are indeed the saints of the Most High, even if they were not all yet Christians, although some of them were, the Germanic tribes were those who judged the Roman Empire. Those whom Yahweh employed to destroy it, as it has already been described discussing Daniel chapter 2, that they are the stone cut out from the mountain without hands, that mountain being the mountain of God, which is what I believe the word Aryan actually means, Ar meaning mountain, and Yah meaning Yahweh, Arya. The Arian people are the mountain of God. Verse 24. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be diverse in the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Until this verse, the ten horns are seen here as being representative of the Roman provinces, like the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2. Here it is explained that they are ten kings in a manner which is seemingly different than what has been related previously at Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. However, too much may be read into that passage. Yet here it may also be, and with greater certainty, identifying the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, this eleventh horn which rises up from among the ten, as Justinian. Of course, ten horns cannot possibly represent all of the Roman emperors. But after the Roman Empire split, there were ten emperors of the Eastern Empire. Valens, Theodosius I, Arcadius, Theodosius II, Marcianus, Leo I, Leo II, Zeno, Anastasius, and Justin I. There were a couple of would-be usurpers, recognized pretenders, who tried to take the throne for themselves. However, these ten that I have just named were the legitimate rulers of the Byzantine Empire. And then, it was the 11th king of the Eastern Empire, which was Justinian. The three kings which he subdued were the three Kings that his general Belisarius defeated from the, re, from the invading Germanic tribes. These three kings are the Gothic kings, Vitigis and Totila, and the Vandal king, Gelimer. So we see that Justinian fits this description perfectly. Daniel 7, Verse 25. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and they shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times, and a dividing of a time. Well, Justinian is not by himself able to live for a time and times and the dividing of a time, which, as it has been described here before, and as it is evident elsewhere, represents a period of 1260 prophetic years. Let me say that 1260 years are 42 prophetic months, 42 Times 30 days in a month being 1260. A time being a prophetic year of 360 days, 360 days being 360 years in prophecy, times three and a half is also 1260. Yet the institutions that Justinian created during his rule certainly did last that long. Many of those institutions are still extant today. Justinian created a new set of laws in four parts, which were issued from 529 to 534 A.D., of which many were based on the old Roman law and revised into his own. These four parts were called the novels, or the new laws, the code, the digest, and the institutes. While earlier Byzantine emperors were also legislators, notably Theodosius I, these laws of Justinians became the foundation for canon law, the canon law of the Roman Catholic Church. They also became the civil law, or the foundation for the civil law, for nearly all of Europe until the time of Napoleon who introduced his own Napoleonic code, which itself was based upon Justinian's laws. Justinian's laws still affect Western law today, and the church, the Catholic church, still runs on them. So for all of this time, the children of God had been ruled over by the laws of the beast system of old Rome, One exception was the original English common law system, which for many centuries stood in opposition to these statutes of imposed civil law. Another establishment of Justinian was the papacy. It was Justinian who officially decreed in his novels, section 131, that the bishops of Rome would be the ultimate religious authority over all of the Christian assemblies of the empire. This act created the Roman Catholic Church as history has seen it. Until, until this time, from the days of Constantine, the emperor was the de facto head of, head of all the bishops of all the Christian assemblies. And the other bishops had resisted attempts by the Roman bishops to exert authority over them. As early as the 4th century A.D., the ecclesiastical historian Eusebius of Caesarea, who was an acquaintance of Constantine's, recorded recorded such attempts by the Roman bishops, who even then began insisting upon being called Papa or Pope. The other Christian assemblies at this time rejected those claims by the Roman, by the Roman bishops, but Justinian made it official. As early as the Pope called Gregory the Great, who did much to consolidate Roman church power, these Roman bishops continued to, quote, change times and laws where one sees the Gregorian calendar, and they eventually came to rule over all Christendom, even over the kings of Europe, in accordance with the laws of man and this old Roman beast system, and not according to the laws of God. Daniel seven twenty six. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. While the power of the Romish people, I'm sorry, while the power of the Romish Pope had already been greatly diminished in Northern Europe, which was mostly Protestant, it was Napoleon who in 1798 finally put a permanent end to the temporal power of the papacy, at least outside of Italy. In 1798, French troops marched into Rome arrested many of the, Cardinal of the College of Cardinals and arrested the Pope, Pius VI, who died a prisoner in 1799, over a year later. From the days of Charlemagne and into the 16th century, the popes had been crowning the Holy Roman Emperors. And even earlier, with Pepin, the Frankish king, in 754 A.D., who was the first king to be crowned by a pope. As early as Gregory the Great, the Roman Church claimed authority for, his, for its bishops as secular potentates. Gregory the Great, in his writing, used the term, "huius Saculi Potentes, secular potentes, secular powers, worldly powers, That's what secular means. In Latin, it means worldly. And this would not have been possible without the earlier edicts of Justinian. With the Reformation and the subsequent Thirty Years' War, the Holy Roman Empire disintegrated. France, however, was still a Catholic state, and the new pope, Pius VII, was present and participated in the ceremonies in 1804, when Napoleon was crowned Emperor of the French. But Napoleon crowned himself in a ceremony that was agreed upon in advance with the Pope. However, this was a clear sign that the Romish Popes would no longer rule over the monarchs of Europe, and Pius VI had been arrested by Napoleon almost exactly 1,260 years after Justinian ascended to the Byzantine throne. Daniel 7, verse 27. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve And obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Napoleon put a final end to the temporal power of the papacy, at least outside of Italy. Yet even though the Franks and Gauls were indeed descended from the Israelites... France did not maintain world hegemony from that time. Rather, the Saxon peoples, and especially the English, rose to world hegemony. Although little attention is given to them in folklore today, German princes shared, especially the Prussians, shared in the British battles and the ultimate victory over Napoleon. England, and then America, a nation built primarily from colonists of those Saxon nations of Europe, have had world hegemony ever since, for better or for worse. And even in our direst circumstances, one must see Daniel 727 as a promise that those Saxon people shall never be supplanted. Now we can return to Revelation chapter 13 from where we left off at verse 11. And I saw another beast ascending from out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke as a dragon. This is a perfect description of the Romish popes who under the guise of lambs and the pretense of Christianity, they devoured the sheep just as the dragon would do. The popes certainly were the lamb which spoke as a dragon which exercised all the power of the first beast. For an example, just examine the Crusades. They ruled over all the kings of Europe and controlled the hearts and minds of most of the people of Europe for many centuries. For nearly all of the time, from the reign of Justinian to that of Napoleon, the popes were the single dominating force in the fate of the peoples of Europe. Verse 12 and all the authority of the first beast it practices in his presence, and it makes the earth and those dwelling in it that they shall worship the first beast who had been healed from the wound of its death. The first beast represented world empire, which is exactly what the Romish church had sought under the pretense of being the one true church. An idea that was never Christian in the first place. The apostles left behind a collection of independent and self-governing Christian assemblies. The first beast, the fourth world empire of Daniel's vision, had been healed of its wound under the guise of the imperial papacy. The popes, crowning the kings of Europe, had all the power of the first beast. The Holy Roman Empire was not a separate beast, but rather its emperors being coronated by the popes, it was a part of this beast. Therefore, the Holy Roman Emperors are not the seventh feast of Revelation chapter 17, as many have claimed. However, that shall be discussed in its appropriate place. We see that the second feast of Revelation chapter 13 rose from the ashes of old Rome. Let me say, as an aside, that when Justinian's general, Belisarius, was making war against the Goths to regain control of Italy, and he ultimately did defeat the Gothic kings, Wittigas and Totilla, Totilla. Rome, Rome's population, as described by the historian Procopius, who was an eyewitness, the population of Rome was down to a few dozen people. That is certainly descriptive of the, the wounding of the head of the first beast unto death, that Rome could come back as an ecclesiastical empire after that. Verse thirteen, and he shall make a great sign that even fire would be made from heaven to dwell to, to descend to earth before men. I'm sorry. And he would deceive those dwelling upon the earth through the signs which had been given to him to make in the presence of the beast, saying to those dwelling upon the earth to make an image for the beast who has the wound of the sword and has lived. And there had been given to him to give a spirit to the image of the beast in order that the image of the beast may also speak and may make it that as many as who would not worship the the image of the beast would be slain. The popes made fire come down upon the earth by making war against the saints and forcing the various nations of Christendom into papal idolatry with the threat of war and interdict. The image of the beast was all of the pomp and majesty and regal appearance of the papacy which the people worshipped just as their forebears had worshipped the pomp of the emperors of Rome. And many still do this unto this very day, turning out in the hundreds of thousands wherever the Pope travels, wherever the Popes travel, to get a glimpse of an old man waving at idolaters from a bulletproof van. The priests, bishops, and cardinals of the Romish Church are celebrities rather than being servants of the community. They deprive it of its wealth and sustenance. They are worshipped by the people just as the Pope is. And all of this idolatry of humans is in addition to the idolatry of the Romish religion, which we find in statues and images and the relics, which it has placed upon pedestals for centuries. One of Martin Luther's major complaints against the Romish Church was the selling of indulgences tickets out of purgatory for oneself or for one's loved ones that were purchased from the church. Of course, neither purgatory nor the idea of indulgences are scriptural, but the Romish church taught them, and through them it was able to transfer a large amount of wealth from the peoples of Europe into their own greedy coffers. Martin Luther realized that Yahshua Christ already paid the only price necessary for his people. And so the Romish church had no right collecting anything further. The Roman church was, and still is, a racket. Revelation 13, verse 16. And it makes all those who are small and those who are great and those who are wealthy and those who are poor and those who are free and those who are slaves, that they have given to them an engraved mark upon their right hand or upon their forehead, and in order that one would not be able to buy or sell if he has not the mark, the name of the beast or the number of his name. The Romish church practices something called the interdict, which is a censure that prohibits a person, city, district, or even an entire kingdom from communion and other ecclesiastical benefits. Today, it is merely ceremonial, and it keeps people out of church on Sunday. Back in the Middle Ages, when the bishops had temporal control in the community, they were the temporal powers, as we saw the Gregory the Great explain, or Gregory the Great profess, I should say, secular potentates. When the bishops had temporal control in the community, and when the popes ruled over the kings of Europe, the interdict was much more serious. Once under the interdict, one could not participate in trade nor receive any sustenance, nor have any other type of communion with the community at large. While excommunication was more serious than the interdict because excommunication was permanent, the interdict was a temporary excommunication until the subject of the interdict returned to the obedience of the Romish church. You were forced You had no food, no sustenance, nothing. Other Catholics could not trade with you or give you anything if you were under the interdict. You were forced to worship the beast. A stronger form of excommunication practiced by the popes was a ritual pronunciation of anathema, which the popes undertook in order to condemn a person to hell as if they actually had any real heavenly authority to do such a thing. The Council of Trent, which was held in the mid-16th century during the Reformation, pronounced an anathema upon anyone who disagreed with the Romish Church in any way. These decrees have never been canceled, and so... The official position of the Romish church to this very day is that anyone who does not worship them, who does not worship the Pope, is condemned to hell. One may bristle at the idea that obedience to the Pope is worship of the Pope, but it most certainly is. The founders of this nation surely knew that Catholicism was popery, was Pope worship. The Bible defines service to God as obedience to the word of God. For instance, in Romans chapter 6 or in 1 Peter chapter 3. Christ said at Matthew chapter 4 verse 10, Thou shalt worship Yahweh thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. One cannot honor God and serve a pope, a mere man who rules over the world under the laws of man. The apostles understood likewise where it is recorded in Acts four hundred nineteen. But Peter and Johannes, Peter and John, replying to them to the Pharisees, said whether it is just before Yahweh to listen to you or rather to Yahweh, you decide. You cannot be obedient to the Pope and worship God. You cannot serve God and Mammon or God and man. You can Worship God by serving your brother. Revelation 13, verse 18. Thus is wisdom. He having a mind must calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. To this day, the Romish popes consider themselves to be the quote-unquote vicar of Christ. A vicar is a substitute. But a living God does not need a substitute. So this title is quite pretentious and very unchristian. It's actually Antichrist. The popes have always claimed the title, Vicarious Filii Dei, which means substitute for the Son of God. Counting the value of the letters of this title, for those letters which have a value in the Latin system, the total of the value is 666. Here is the number of the beast in a title that the popes themselves claimed. A title which is in itself a blasphemy and which is in the language and the system of numbers which the popes themselves used in Latin, the official language of the Romish Church. Therefore, it is not a stretch to imagine that this is a final and significant mark in the identification of this beast. There should be no doubt that this paragraph portrays the Roman papacy. Thank you. That's the end of my presentation on Revelation chapter 13. The notes are already posted at Christreich. Reading them tonight, I realized I had a... a um, One or two small corrections to make. I'll make them probably tonight or in the morning. This podcast will be posted at Christagenia within two hours. Thank you, everybody, and I'll be back here next week, probably with Revelation chapters 14 and 15. Good night. Praise Yahweh.